Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm the Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire. And I still can't stop thinking about how good Andor is. It's just a really, really good TV show. Did not think I was going to have a Star Wars Disney Plus prequel living rent-free in my head. But here we are. Uh, So I am interrupting our usual winter focus on feature films and documentaries to talk to two of the three Gilroy brothers who worked on the series, uh, Andor's creator, Tony Gilroy, and the editor of episodes one, two, three, and six, John Gilroy. Uh, We talked about the challenge of making a Star Wars show absolutely airtight. We talked about how score influenced Andor's pace uh, and its world building. And I'm I'm very excited for y'all to hear where that discussion went. So if you haven't watched Andor, go do that. I promise you'll like it. Uh, And then come back and enjoy this conversation with Tony and John Gilroy. The only thing I I think I'm more bittersweet about ending right now than Andor is Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. Um, And you've spoken in the past about sort of how your knowledge of history has informed the, the shape and structure of Andor. So I'm curious for you to sort of talk about what a complete picture of sort of a revolutionary moment requires. Like what in your mind as a screenwriter do you need to have? Like what what are sort of the characters and or ingredients to tell the story of a revolution? I too have listened to Mike Duncan over the years. It's a great show. I, I didn't listen to it on the full throw. I kind of it's one of those things where you start listening to the revolutions that you're most interested in, and then, then you run out of revolutions, and you uh, you keep going back and and uh, dipping in. He, it's very well done, so kudos to him. I mean, I'm just an idiot screenwriter, you know, drive-by amateur historian. So, I mean, I just... The draw for me at the first place is uh, the canvas, the scale of it, the, the fact that... Uh, well, we didn't know when we started, but certainly along the way, the idea that we'll have you know, 1,500 pages of a, of a landscape to do. And uh, I've been bottled up at 130 pages for 35, 35 years. And so that's a very enticing prospect. Um, it is, uh, we know the ending. Uh, the character is really fertile and open, and the actor is just brilliant. Uh, Diego, I knew him from Rogue. Those are all big opportunities. And uh, I'm meant to curate a five-year period of sort of canonical history where there is a revolution breaking over an entire galaxy full of anything, really. So I have all this hugeness, right? All that's huge. And then I just get really, really small. I get really, really small, and I start with one little thing, and I start to pull the string, and and, uh, and I work my way out. I don't think about that other stuff. That's the thing that got me in the room, but I never think about that, and I job one is, is to make a ripping yarn. Job one is to make you want to turn the page and make you want to see what happens next, and that's the first thing that has to happen, and um, all the other things are the furniture that you move around, and they're the reason to keep you there, and they're the big opportunity, but that, that's my process, if that answers your question. It does a bit, yeah, and it makes sense that scale means both hugeness and sort of the tiny walnuts that a a judge in Neomos is cracking, um, being very bored. I'm curious for for both of you, 
what are some of the advantages to sort of working in these sort of structured blocks, three episodes that are going to kind of tell a complete story, but also propel us forward and then three more and then we sort of reset and and three more after that. Does it feel more like home, more like feature work or um, are there unexpected challenges that arise from structuring the show in that way? It does sort of end. It does sort of feel comfortable. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that was your intention, Tony, when you uh, to do these things in three blocks, you know, to make it sort of feel like sort of feature length. But it it does end up feeling really comfortable to people that work and have done a lot of movies. You know, it does. It does for me. It wasn't an or. It wasn't where we started, but it it kind of evolved. I guess from mm. two things. One. Uh, it is the organizing principle of this kind of production. I don't know if this is, you know, I guess it's a more European production or a large-scale production. A lot of shows that are big shows shoot in blocks of three or shoot in blocks. You know, you have a block for directors. So that you can actually be creative, yeah. The scale of the show is so large, they can only prep a certain amount. There's only a certain amount of, you know, that you just couldn't possibly do it. As the show is taking shape, that organizing principle kind of revealed itself you're always looking for, Johnny's the same way that I am. You do so much problem solving. It's just constant problem solving or and, and constant, you know, people say world building, but it's just imaginative work. And you're trying to, you're trying to make the chaos not so uh, overwhelming. And so you're always looking for frames. You're always looking for, oh my God, if I chapter this out, I can work it out. If I put this, if I make a list of what I have to do, if I, you're always panicking looking for, for organizational, you know, orthodoxies to, to try to compartmentalize all the steam that's flying around. So it, it actually sort of evolved together. Uh, I don't think we were, we didn't really slavishly think of it that way. Uh, as we got into it, we were like, oh, wow, it's one, two, three. And I guess the only other thing to say about it, it does give you a little bit of confidence as you go along that um, you don't have to do everything every episode. Kind of and go you can like, really hey, pivot too. Yeah. You know, you go from one world to another world and, and people don't see that coming. It really, I think it's refreshing. Each block is really different. It puts dynamics, the same dynamics that you're looking for in every scene, the same dynamics you're looking for in every sequence, the same dynamics you're looking for in every episode. It gives you a macro dynamic to the whole picture. No, you're gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna do episode six and go loud. We have to. We have to reset in seven. We have to reset here. We can calm down here. We can rebuild. So. Yeah, that was something that really struck me. So much of streaming stuff is like a. It's it's this very slow build towards like episodes nine or ten, and it can feel a little mushy in the middle. Whereas this show has a sharpness and a structure and a, a tempo that can be incredibly patient or can be incredibly sharp um, and the the sort of transitions between are really telling so I, I I wanted to ask you both sort of about like finding the rhythm of the show and you know do different environments or different blocks tend to sort of have a different yeah tempo to it I think the tempo was it was really on the page I mean they the the scripts are just they had to be really good and they had to be really perfect. Um, and, and they were, and they, you know, that's where the, you know, finding the tempo was really not hard in the cutting room because, because it, a lot of it was really written and, 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 and then ex executed. And it was, uh, it was, I think all the hard work, all that hard work was done early on. Yeah. We don't have the luxury of inventing as we go. <clears throat> we have a lot of money to play with, but we don't really have enough money to play with and we don't have, a penny to waste so everything is really totally set and perfect 
to allow the actors and the directors to swing away when they're there, but the tempo is there. I think there's, I thought the other thing that's, that's cool is that part of it is, our, you know, our naivete. I, I played around with trying to do television a couple times in traditional television, and I tried to pitch a couple other streaming things prior as I was doing, but people had all these rules. Oh, your first episode has to be your seventh episode, and this has to be that, and you have to introduce all, you know, you have to show me in the first episode all the, all these rules and all this, uh, <laughs> all this doctrinaire bullshit that um, AI just as a disruptive human being don't want to pay attention to anyway and makes me want to go the other way. And also your naivete is meeting a moment where it's appropriate because this is a new business. Yeah. This is a new thing. These are like these aircraft carriers and people are launching them and some of them are going to sink and some of them are going to float. But all these people are pretending that there's some historical comp or precedence to what they're doing. And there just absolutely isn't where everybody's making shit up at the, at the same time here. So our naivete about, oh, well, we'll just do our thing actually fit with, you know, it was appropriate for, for yeah. the new business. Uh we also knew that that world, though. I mean, we, you know, Rogue, we knew Rogue. We knew that that environment yeah. backwards and forwards. And you also you knew that that wherever the show stopped, it was going to be ending up where that movie began. And that was a that was a factor. Yeah, we sort of had the ultimate hard out. Yeah. <laughs> was there anything sort of in terms of tone or or just sort of the feel or the or the, or the way that Andor moves that you wanted to make distinct from Rogue? Or was the idea to sort of like make this as close to Rogue One as we can oh, so that like we can back in really easily and like that that sort of jetty way is open to us. I really super consciously didn't go back and 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 look at the film until until mm. actually just recently on something else I had to do. It doesn't help me to look at it. Uh I I, I we know that that what we're doing now with the start shooting on we start shooting on Monday, we'll be shooting through August, we'll be building a show for another two years once we do it. We know where we have to end up and we know that as we approach it, we will probably start to blend a mm -hmm. little bit more. We'll probably try to blend a little bit more. We'll certainly be blending with hair and we'll be blending with who's alive and who's dead and who's where. And the look, you know, and, and Greg Fraser, I think, on, on Rogue really set the bar for how it should look. I mean, they, I think Greg's work on, on Rogue is just extraordinary. And there was a lot of looking and a lot of frame grabs and a lot of awe from our DPs and a lot of, it was certainly the platform that we moved off from. But no, I think, um, I think the goal was to just go, we're gonna make our entirely new lane. As Johnny said, we're just gonna go, you know, a hundred stories deeper if we can. Building off of that, you mentioned searching for, for frames and, and obviously the overall structure of the, of the show provides some of those, but I'm curious, like what were the limitations on season one that ended up being the most freeing for y'all or that sort of led to the most satisfying creative discoveries? Tony, you touched on it earlier. I mean, length, not having to tell a two hour story and not having to worry about your, you know, being over, you know, over time all the time and really being able to let scenes play out and and not worry about how long they were and how many frames you had to cut to make your time. I mean, that was, for me, that was a huge, huge thing. I think it, it it's reflected in the writing too. This is kind of an inside baseball podcast though, right? You're kind of really- Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, so, we can nerd out. 
No, no, but I mean, no, I think there's something really interesting, uh, a larger issue, and it's more of a question. I don't think it'll be answered for a long time. But I've had this conversation with, you know, several of my, my cohort, my colleagues, you know, the older uh, screenwriters, older successful screenwriters who've been doing this for a long time and have moved into this. And yeah. we're kind of like carriage horses, you know, 130 pages, 120 pages. I mean, I came up in that, you know, I learned how to write in the 80s. And in the 80s, it just wasn't that. It was like you had to button out all these scenes. You, you like, you learned all this, oh, you button out the scene and, and, and have this jazzy close to the scene, even if it doesn't feel real. And there were all these, all these things that just got baked into us. And so I know how to go quick. I know how to, <laughs> I know when things are shaggy, but yeah. now I don't have to worry. So I don't think I can ever get rid of the fact that I've been, you know, in the, wearing a bridle all these years and doing this when I write. So when I go a little bit longer, I'm always looking, I'm always, that, that's always in there. It'll be interesting to see if you grow up doing this, if this is how you learn to do it, will there be no difference? Will there be uh, a benefit or will there be, or will people get lazy and shaggy as they go along? I don't know. I don't know the answer, but it's, it's certainly, that's, an, that's another new question, right? Absolutely. And it also comes up against the kinds of things that people are willing to make. Well, yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Well, that's always true. Switching gears a little bit. The, the next bullet point I have is just all caps, the score, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I know that that you uh, had to work out a lot of the in-world elements in advance, but I'm curious, when you get into the edit, are those pieces ready? Are they sort of predetermined how you're going to how you're going to cut and shape a scene? Are you using temp music? I'm just so curious about how the score was incorporated and kind of at what stage. Uh, I'll start it and then Johnny will Johnny should talk about our, our temp score. But we, we hired Nick Bertel before we started shooting. And Nick lives in my neighborhood in New York. I knew that we had uh, we had some we had uh, three pieces of digetic music that we needed to get under our belt before we started production. And, and two of them were relatively simple. One was the, the tap, tap, tapping of Ferrix and the signaling of Ferrix and the, the time grappler and, and making a real, really something culturally powerful out of that and yeah. having it really mean something because we were building up this really deep culture in Ferrix and it was part of that. So, and the, then we had the, uh, there's some, there was uh, some chanting and it was actually more elaborate at one time for the Aldani, the people, the Donny. So we had to have that in the bank. But we had this eight-minute piece of music for the uh, for the final for the final episode, and I was just absolutely determined that we would do it live, and I wanted it to be, I wanted it to feel, you know, soulfully amateur. The idea of an amateur civic orchestra. There's just something so heartbreaking about hearing a high school band or a or a yeah. second or even a second line New Orleans funeral band or whatever. There's just something, you know, people really people who are, you know, the doctor and the plumber and whatever picking up their their instruments. I just was and, and Nick was immediately on board for that. So the very first thing that we did is I went to Nick's and for a couple of weeks we we worked up this really complicated, you know, funeral music with a bunch of different pieces and then i didn't see them then then i didn't see nick for a long time 
So we did that. It was a big success, and we did a thing. He was involved in the in the in the in the helping of that, and the people in London who put it together, and all the instrumentation, and how we did it. But we didn't do any other music. Now Johnny should speak about how we do the music along the way. Nick will come back, but in the interim, you know. Yeah, sure. So you do need temp music, of course. We you need temp music to sell your cut, basically, to the people that you're that are paying for it, and you also. You know, you, you want to get great temp score because it can be a real uh, roadmap for a composer. And uh, uh, John Finkley was our music editor who works really closely with Nick. They're kind of like a partnership these days. Um, and we also work with John on Rogue. R- you know, John Finkley came on and he, uh, he really saved our ass. I mean, you know, we were really behind the eight ball and we had like no time and he through a temp score together that was one of the most amazing temp scores I've ever heard because he was using all the other Star Wars movies to do it. So it was amazing. But um, John is, uh, John could probably teach a college course in Star Wars music. He actually knows all the canon of all the songs and this and that. So that's Nick Patel's wingman. So, you know, Tony and I and John will will um, mess around and really get some temp music that we that feels kind of right to us and um and then and then tony and nick will work together and that's a real roadmap of just about you know about where music is uh what it what it would feel like what it's supposed to make you feel like um and it, it worked really well it's a, it's like doing four movies in two years i'd say so we had a lot of ground to cover um but we came up with a good system and it worked out i said yeah the other you know the other thing that the temp score does is it's also how i learn and how johnny it's how we learn what the score is that's right and mm-hmm. uh you really learn and it's also a chance for us to really argue and have all the bitterness and all the all the unpleasantness what are you talking about in a first stage <laughs> in a first stage and and you know the first half of the anxiety that goes into the score goes in the temp and it's a place where you can really sketch and you really mess around and you know john brings us uh, like a like a like a door-to-door salesman, he brings us, oh, here's, you know, I've got seven cues and here's four choices for each cue. And we listen to them and we come back and, you know, we might buy one of these and maybe one of those and, boy, we hate the other ones. And, you know, we get all that out of the way. By the time I get to Nick, who's fresh, we have a roadmap and all we're trying to do is better deal. And I know now, it's the first time Johnny and I didn't get to do music together. That's we've always done it together. That was a little awkward. So we did we couldn't Johnny was in London and Nick and I were in New York and there was just too much to yeah, do. Yeah, we had to sip. You know, we had this Bible and and you go into you go into the studio with Nick, into his little studio, his writing studio, and you I show up with whatever I know, but I also show up really knowing that I've road tested three different things for every moment and I know why things worked and didn't. That's amazing. I'd love to get I'm gonna say one last thing though. One last yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Most composers hate temp scores, right? And for obvious reasons. Nick Bertel, on the other hand, was the first composer, I don't know, Johnny, that I have ever, he, he like, he wanted it, he needed it, he was all over it, it didn't, he wasn't threatened I by the temp I wouldn't ever. say that most composers hate temp scores, they just don't want a temp score that's too good. <laughs> No, but some of them feel crowded. They feel crowded. If it's too good, then they're like, wait a minute, you know? Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. Do I have to do exactly this? Or or they have to like, yeah, something. Yeah, but but, uh, yeah. Uh, it's very helpful, and, and it's every yeah. almost every feature has to have temp music to to preview, and it just it, it's a it's a it's the way the, the way yeah. of the world. 
Makes a ton of sense. I'd love to sort of get into some of the definitely not knockdown drag out fights that y'all have <laughs> trying on these different options and sort of figuring out um, how a scene needs to to feel and to be. And I guess I, I'm, I'm curious, like, what are what are sort of the tools that y'all are arguing over? Is it is it like, you know, how experiential to make the sound? Is it do we need to, like, be mostly wide here or going close? Like, I'm curious, sort of what are what are the knobs that you guys are turning to sort of figure out? A scene. I would, you know, Tony. I would say there definitely have been there. There definitely are arguments and flare-ups here and there. But but one of the big things, one of the big things of working with Tony and working with my our other brother too is there seems to be a sort of a, a, a similar sensibility. So it's amazing how often we're like all sort of in sync and in agreement about about things. So it really actually there's kind of a shorthand the way you'd work. Like you know, if you work with a director or an editor, or whatever you know. A bunch of times yeah so there's a lot of that there's a lot of that but go to, go ahead Tony what are you gonna say um no I think uh look it everything gets better when it's prosecuted if an idea is good it should be able to stand up for for itself against all comers everybody I, I won't work I won't work with that and now I'm you know if you're in charge then you you can really make it so I won't work I won't work I won't work with anybody who walks past a good idea because they have their own idea. That's just, that's, that's, that's the deal breaker. So you're always looking for the better idea. Every now and then you get into a, you get into a, a moment of uh, a place of taste, uh, you know, small, small margins of taste. I think how adventurous you want to be, um, how crazy you want to be. Sometimes that you're pushing that in one direction. Someone doesn't want to. And I guess if there's one place that like is always, uh, how you, how far you underscore emotion and how far mm. you let things go. Uh, this is, again, because this is an inside baseball in-depth kind of thing. I'll tell you one thing that's really fascinating is that we had to learn how to spot differently on this than we had been trained to do making movies. If you spot normally, a lot of times you could have a scene and it's, you know, my God, it's a, an eight page scene now in this show. And, 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 and if you spot it like a movie and you put even good music too soon, all of a sudden the scene just disappears. It just washes out. If you watch closely, you know, for the people that are the music geeks, watch how late we spot. Right, Johnny? Don't you think? You mean how late we come in sometimes? Yeah. Could, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. the scenes are longer. How late and you, we spot. And you, you, you don't want to run out of gas. No, Kino's speech is very, like, I in, in 10, um, I, I sort of clocked, like, a lesser version of this would have had music a lot sooner than it does. And you know what? I'm sure, in due diligence, and, and properly so, when John Finkley gave us one of the five choices that he gave us, or I don't know how many times we went back and forth on that, I'm sure one of the choices did that. And we got to hear it and that's, go... That's true. And we got to hear it and go... Wow, you know what? I think it's better if it's dry and for the first minute. And you, but we know it. It's not like it's a mystery. It's something that we've actually road tested because we have the personnel and the and the the security of of making you know informed decisions. That's awesome. Um, to back up slightly, I'm curious if y'all could talk through sort of that road testing process to like a freshman film student um, who sort of understands the basics of editing, but may not completely uh, have learned every step yet. I don't know. Johnny, go for it, man. Johnny has walked so many, Johnny has walked so many first time directors to the altar 
and 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 giving them away <laughs> to the audience. I mean, it's it, seriously, man. He is the he is the uh, he is the he is the first time director whisperer. He should answer this. Well, I mean, you can you can just by working with someone, you can they can they can sort of understand where you're coming from. But I, I think it really comes down to taste. I mean, I mean. Uh, hopefully you're working with that first time director that has some taste and, and usually with taste comes some restraint, not restraint in every way, but, but just, uh, if you're talking about music coming in at the right time and coming in with the right, with the right music, having taste, ha like, it's like the single biggest thing, um, for me in a cutting room. And, and when we work, we all work together, our little brain trust, everybody, everybody has good taste. Everybody, so so there's it's never it's never outlandish. And I've been on films where certainly people did not have good taste, and it's you know, and it's like it's a horrible experience. I mean, it's just you know, it's just it it, it feels crazy. But um, I don't know if you can teach that or not. I don't know. Maybe I think you could probably can to some degree. But uh, yeah, good taste. One thing to, to sort of move slightly away from sound a little bit that's sort of striking about the show is is the patience it has to sort of build out these sort of like the the culture of their pharynx and um the wordless interpersonal relationships of the canary and i'm curious just like in terms of you know you're not as constrained as a film but you still have got to make a runtime sort of how you balance interstitial moments or, or sort of wordless world building against all of the dialogue that needs to happen in a scene you know everything we do has to be designed I mean, every single place we go, and it, in, in the and I talked about the naivete before. It's also the naivete of what we were taking on. Once you get into it, and there's no turning back, you realize absolutely everything you do has to be built. I mean, really, my number one primary, almost writing collaborator is Luke Hull, who's the designer on the show, because he's my first call. I'm working today. I've talked to. He said a baby. I've bothered him three times today with architecture for blocking, and like. Like, I have to be with him all the time. But we are surrounded by just this. Johnny came to a props meeting with us yesterday. Mm -hmm. Was that the most insane thing? You Could you believe what we saw? We have so many nutty, obsessed, crazy, brilliant people. And all you have to do is, like, give them just enough money and point them in the right direction and, and appreciate what they do. And now you start to go deep and... If you're gonna build all these cultures, they have to be completely built out. And we used to talk about, oh, it's a 360 set, you know, like, you know, if you open the drawer, there's pencils in it. You know, actors would be so impressed. Oh my God, there's pencils here. And look, the sink really works or whatever. Well, what we have to do is like a hundred times that. And then, cause what you want is you want, you want to take to the cutting room just completely real, huge swaths of things that are real, and then you want to use the bits you want so that it, it all works off the frame. It all has a life beyond mm -hmm. the camera. And there's just absolutely no possible shortcut to it. You have to build everything out all the way. It's, um, you don't know what you're doing. You know, now we're in it and we know what we have to do and we're better at it, but it, and I'm not complaining. I'm not, I don't want to be like, oh my God, I'm whining where we work so hard, but it is a fucking beast. Yes, it, it's Star Wars. Uh, it, there's nothing huger. Um, so I guess I, that means like you, 
you just have to shoot a bunch of it so that you have options in the edit. It's actually it's actually the opposite of that. It, I, I I'd say I'd say it's what what they do is they they come up with a shooting plan, and it's the kind of shooting plan you'd have on a big movie. But on a big movie, they'd have four shooting plans or two at least backup and whatever, and they be and they would shoot the crap out of it. They the shooting it's it's about the shooting plan so it's it's the opposite of that it's it's very specific and then all the texture all the Star Wars texture is is sort of it's it's everywhere it's like you know you talked about like people are it's our stories going on and people are talking but 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 as Tony said the props and the and the production design everything is working for this in the Star Wars universe all the time and anytime anybody can think of something tasteful. They put it like it's it it goes in, and so that's what you're seeing on the screen. But the world building has to be like I'm trying to. I'll give you an example. One of the very first things as I was building Ferrix, long before we had the writers room or anything else, and I'm on the phone with Luke and cocktail napkin maps of Ferrix and the other thing. One of the very first things, and what and I I'm always looking for entry points. Oh, here's a great scene. I don't know where it's going to go, but I have to have this scene or navigation. Mm. The gloves, if you ever watch again in the first episode, when they when the grapplers come out and says, Oh, well, let's have grapplers, let's have this, let's have a society here, let's stratify it. So you have buyers and pickers and shop owners and grapplers and this and like those gloves on the wall, I'm like, oh my God, all the gloves that they have, and before they go in the hall and they come out of the union hall every morning, and where you hang your glove, is it where your father or your mother hung her gloves, or is is it a status thing? And those gloves means so much to me and it's only one shot in the show but that is and we didn't overshoot it we didn't we did it but it wasn't you know there's not like we didn't yeah. shoot there's not a lot of glove footage on the floor but that replicate that times what 700 for every show those are the kinds of that's those are the points of entry of the kind of obsessive <laughs> lunacy that we try to that we we try to just infect all seven hundred people that are working at at Pinewood to be onto, and and everybody knows that they're rewarded for going deep. I mean, obsessive lunacy, visual storytelling—they are the same thing. <laughs> the 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 last thing I wanted to to ask you guys is for season one. I'm curious: was there a particular sequence or scene that changed the most radically, or was the hardest to work out, or was it really? just like finding the right components to sort of build the puzzle piece of the script out. I don't know. Where do we, where did we, where did we spend the most time, Johnny? I guess six, maybe six we did. Yeah. Um, I guess six. Yeah. Six was, a, it, it was a lot of, it was the heist and it was a lot of, uh, a lot of moving components. Some of it was in, it was on stage and some of it was on location. A lot of weather issues. Yeah. A lot of weather issues. Mm -hmm. It's the only place where we reoriented the story and moved, changed the top, moved to move stuff around. Oh, interesting. That's the only place we did it. It's actually incredible how how little we did that through the entire show. I mean, like that's probably one of the yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't re like you know rearranging. Oh, let's let's try. Let's put this. You know, let's put this in the back. It, there's none of that, and the, there's no time. There's no time to do it. You can't really. That would throw everything off if we if we did it that way. And Sarah, we don't have any scenes that we didn't use. That's that's, that's awesome. also that's also true. We reshot a couple things. We reshot a couple things to better deal them. 
maybe three scenes, something like that. We reshot yeah. just to, because we thought we could do them better and we had a better idea and we, and we were given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. But we do not have deleted scenes. There would be no DVD extras on our, on our, on our platter. Zero. Incredible. Really it's weird. True. Very it's weird. Very surprising to us. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it just gets back to what you said of the, the scripts just have to be perfect. Um, I'm curious what shifted at the, at the top of six. Like what was the thing that sort of you guys solved by moving it around? The original top of six was the speech was Beehaz's speech, right? And uh, right, and because uh, it's a very bravura thing, and we'll introduce him, and it was always just felt right. When we shot it, we had so much weather crap in Scotland that the opening scene almost didn't get sh the, the scene where they're having coffee and where where Nemec comes to him and says, "I couldn't sleep," and you know, and. It was such a disaster. It wasn't supposed to be in fog. It was supposed to be all these other things. But everybody quickly turned on a dime. And we sort of embraced the Kurosawa look of that. <laughs> yeah, it looks great. Yeah. It looks great, and the fog. all yeah. of a sudden, it was there. And because it's so foggy and drifty and because it's so weird and sort of otherworldly and dreamy, you couldn't put it after the other sequence. It just didn't feel like it felt in the script. It felt much more... Uh, yeah, just dreamier and you know what? I don't know whose idea. Let's put this at the top and see how it works. And all of a sudden, you're like, "Yeah, this is the protein. <laughs> this is where we want to be." It also gave yeah. the whole show more gravitas because it, it's like the stakes are right up front. It was it was yeah. sort of whimsical. Behaz yeah. is sort of oh, look at those people. You know, it, it, it's a whole different animal starting it with the guys and their and their fear about about the robbery. 